My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. This is Jamie Keach. And today I had the chance to sit down with a friend of mine, uh, someone who's become a good friend over about the last year and a half. His name is Nick Germain, but he goes online by the nickname Mining Book Guy. And he does a lot. And I think that name doesn't quite do him justice because Nick, in addition to recommending many, many books that are of value to the mining investor, is a prolific investor himself. He is obsessive. He is energetic. He has phenomenal ideas and does tremendous amounts of research into the projects that he's looking at, into the companies he's investing in, into everything to do with some of the most interesting jurisdictions and fascinating stories in the space. And I've been thinking for a long time about having Nick on the podcast And I wanted to get him on today because I think he is somebody that every retail investor and everyone at home who is interested in investing in the mining space and interested in learning more needs to hear about. Because Nick, unlike anyone else that we've had on this podcast, um, has had one of the most unusual and in a lot of ways inspiring career paths of anyone I know. So Nick is not a mining professional. He has an undergraduate degree in statistics. He does not come from a mining background. He's never worked in the space. He is a retail investor that several years ago got essentially obsessed with mining and the opportunities there. And he threw himself into this world full tilt, um, first independently researching different companies, different opportunities, uh, commodities. Uh, He got really interested in gold and precious metals early on. And then he started to reach out and meet people in the sector. Uh, This includes first online on platforms like CEO.ca, on platforms like Twitter, and then at mining conferences. And over the last several years, he was able to build up a tremendous network of very talented both investors, uh, management teams, and you know people who are really in the know in the sector. And he's turned himself uh, into a very knowledgeable expert on this sector and what I would consider a very well-respected voice. So Nick has a YouTube channel, Mining Book Guy. He's also got Twitter and all that. He's got a website, miningbookguy.com. And what he does is he covers companies that he is investing his own money in. So he's buying stock on the market, and then he's building out these really excellent videos that summarize the project, summarize the people involved, and really lay out the reasons why he likes it and why he's putting in his own money. And what makes Nick really interesting, really fascinating, is he's been living off this for several years now. So he makes his money, he makes his livelihood from investing in mining companies. And he's really focused on the tip of the spear, the micro cap companies, these five to $20 million market caps that are looking to make big discoveries in interesting jurisdictions. So this is something very close to my heart, something I thought was really cool. And I was, I've always been fascinated to hear 
what Nick is doing and he has provided a tremendous amount of value in, in alerting me to companies that were not previously on my radar. So I can't recommend the work he does enough. And he comes from such a fascinating background. Um, you know, after getting a degree, he became essentially a lifelong entrepreneur. And he made the capital that allowed him to have this career in this space by doing something that would seem on the surface as being wildly different, but as we get into, has a lot of parallels to the mining space. He started a Facebook game company. So this is a video game company that in the early days was making games for Facebook. Um, He had a lot of success there, and it's a really interesting, fascinating story that we get into in depth in our conversation. And he talks about how these sort of quote-unquote Wild West industries provides so many provide so many opportunities for the outsider that is passionate, uh, that is driven, that is curious, and wants to get involved. So I really can't recommend enough listening to Nick, checking out his YouTube channel, and just hearing how someone can go from being an outsider in the industry to being really an insider and a professional investor in this space. So after that very long introduction, without further ado, let me please introduce Nick Germain, the mining book guy. Nick, welcome to the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jamie. Great to be here. So so I want to get back or get into how we met, uh, who you are, um, the work we've done together, things we've looked at together. Um, but first, let tell everybody where you are today. Oh, yeah. So I'm in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota in the U.S., the Twin Cities, and, uh, you know, kind of out of the way. It's, it's hard to find anybody here to talk about mining, but uh, that kind of leads to uh, why I'm so excited to have entered this space as an outsider and really done everything I can to take advantage of, uh, you know, mining kind of going online and the whole social media side. So, uh, I mean, there's plenty more to say, but that's, uh, I think that's a big thing is that I'm really kind of an outsider kind of making my way in this industry. Yeah, so I uh, had not met many serious mining investors from Minneapolis previous uh, to meeting you about a year and a half ago here in Vancouver, Um, and it is very interesting. And I've been on a lot of podcasts and interviews lately that are talking about younger people coming into the space. Um, They're talking about the use of technology, about how millennials and the younger generation of mining investors or would-be investors are utilizing technology in order to get access to things or to understand things in a way that previous generations had not been able to do. And I actually think there's probably no better example of that than you because you are someone that does not have a professional background previously in the sector. You do not live in one of the major mining hubs, the you know Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Perth, um, and you have utilized uh, Twitter, YouTube, CEO.ca, uh, and certainly other platforms in a way that very few people have. So I've been pontificating. I think we need to start getting into you. Uh, you are known online as the mining book guy. Uh, that was what you were first introduced to me as. Give us a little background about what the mining book guy is and who Nick Germain is from 30,000 feet. Oh, absolutely. So uh, 
I think the name mining book guy is very important because I do love books, but that wasn't always the case. And to take a little bit of a flashback, when I was in college, I got pushed into being the president of the financial club. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing because I wasn't a finance major. I was just getting interested in business. What were you studying? Oh, I was studying applied statistics. And I guess really quick on that, I thought I wanted to be an engineer. I don't think I have an engineering mind. I kind of like business math more than, uh, you know, really technical stuff. But I started to get interested in the social sciences, even though I was at a technical school. I uh, started, you know, to look into economics. And then I was like, oh, no, I like I still like the applied stuff. And so I started joining these clubs. But when I got pushed into being the president of this club, which wasn't doing so well, I was like, I got to do everything I can to like learn about this. And, you know, what's the best way to do it? And I just bought a ton of books, you know, the Warren Buffett's, the Peter Lynch's, uh, you know, Ben Graham. Like I read a ton of these things, like 30 of them within the next three to six months. And it was that was really cool. I, I think that was the most important thing in college was me kind of realizing I can do this stuff independently. Uh, and, and I think I got more out of that than the actual classes. And so, um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, and I, and it's, um, it's a funny thing. Cause I also learned some leadership skills there. You know, the club grew from just like three or four of us to like 30 people. Um, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other details there, but what I wanted to tie it into was that, uh, you know, I did these other entrepreneurial things, but once I got into the mining space or got interested in it, it was a very similar way. It was that independent side uh, you know, reading all of these books on my own and that eventually, you know, became kind of my mind. Yeah. So before we get into the full backstory of what led you into the mining space and how you became the mining book guy, I think let's talk about what it is you actually do today. Um, yeah. You know, we were on a podcast the other day and you said, oh, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of busy on a weekday for me to do that. And I said, Nick, how are you going to get away from your not job to, meet, to, to come to this meeting? Because you don't have a job. You are a professional, full-time mining investor from home, from your personal account. You're one of the few people, you're the only person in their 30s that I've ever met doing this. You know, there's a lot of guys in their 50s and 60s who have the luxury of doing this, but you're doing this in your 30s. So what is it that you do today? And what is it that you see your role in the space being? Oh, great, great question. And and you're right. I don't know anyone else, at least publicly, who's like myself. There might be a few others out there. But what I love is that I can come into this space and I can have influence on these stocks. Now, this is a personal choice and I haven't, you know. So so before we get into that, Mm -hmm. for people who haven't seen your work before, let's talk about what it is you've actually been doing the last few years in this sector. Okay. Yeah, sure. So. CEO.ca was so important as the first online platform where I realized I could have some influence because I realized that there were industry insiders, you know, CEOs, there were other speculators, you know, like you said, people in their 50s and 60s who maybe have been here for 20, 30 years and they live in Vancouver, Toronto, who were on there. And I was reading every single thing that came out on CEO.ca when it was uh, started as a a social platform uh, at the beginning of 2015. So I was very timid at first. I read everything on there. I didn't post a single thing. And then I finally 
came on with, you know, my mining book guy moniker, uh, we'll talk, say like August, 2016. Within that next four or five month period, you know, from August to the end of 2015, I just couldn't believe how easily it was to mingle with these guys and, and to, you know, talk with the professionals and, uh, and get, I guess, so much more positive feedback of like, wow, this is another way to learn instead of me just, you know, sitting in the back and, or, and, uh, uh, just picking up that information. I think the key change, and this this is where I started to expand across social media, was when I launched my YouTube channel. Because I was wondering, you know, do I want to, uh, do I w- just want to, like, do some book reviews, which is something that I started with. I started talking about books. But somewhere in 2016, I was like, you know what, I'm going to start promoting these stocks but I'm going to do it as an independent investor. And so I had this, you know, mini hoard of cash. And rather than try to increase that through, you know, sponsorship or cash flow, it's like, I'm the investor. I'm just an enthusiastic investor who's going to buy a bunch of shares in a stock. But rather than just talk about it on CEO.ca, I'm going to make these deep dive company videos and see if I can help the company do a little better. And that's worked out surprisingly well in these small, illiquid uh, juniors that there's no professional coverage. So I actually feel like I'm one of the few guys who actually knows what's going on in these uh, sub 10 or 20 million market cap companies. So just a bit of background for our listeners at home that are maybe not familiar with this. CEO.ca is a platform uh, and a website that was created by a friend of mine named Tommy Humphreys. Uh, and is still managed by him today. And essentially what it is, is a fairly sophisticated chat room that allow, that is focused on mining and exploration and the mineral sector. It allows investors or interested parties to create a profile. They can go on there. They can talk to each other. They can talk about companies. Uh, it's, um, it's a very good source for, for retail investors like Nick was particularly at the time to get an understanding of what's going on in the space, what people are following and to sort of trade ideas. And it's, I know it's had a tremendous amount of benefit for a lot of people. So Nick, that is where you got your start, I guess, in terms of starting to engage with other people, as opposed to just reading press releases and reading technical information at home. You started to be able to ask the people who were more experienced than yourselves questions and start commenting yourself and eventually, so eventually you got to the point where you decided to become essentially an independent online promoter. Uh, and, you know, this is, I saw these videos before I even met you. Uh, first reviewing books like The Big Score, uh, you know, that was probably the first mining book that I ever read. Uh, in my view, it's far and beyond the best one. Uh, it's really? the most exciting book about the industry. It talks about Rod, Robert Friedland's background and then the discovery and then eventual sale of the Voises Bay project and all the ups and downs and mayhem included in that. But it gives uh, readers a really, really good idea or a good overview of what's possible in the space and how decisions are made and how these companies are structured. And it's I would view it as very much required reading for anyone who wants to play seriously in the mining, in particular the junior sector. So you started doing that a couple of years ago, and that has grown exponentially over the last few years, both in terms, because you moved away from just reviewing books and started reviewing companies. Yes. Yes. Now that's, that's right. And I think 
exact exponential not necessarily in terms of you know the subscribers i have but in terms of the influence absolutely and the funny thing is jamie when we first met that was only my second conference so i i um i went to beaver creek in september of 2017 so that was you know many years after i started in this industry that was my first conference and then i i met you at at um, the VRIC in January 2017, and at both of those conferences, I was so happy when professionals that I respected had no idea that they knew anything about me and said, "Oh, I know all about you, Nick. The, you're the mining book guy, and I saw you know your video on so and so company or this or that." And you know these are brokers, these are CEOs of these companies, and it's funny because I've talked to other people who say their in has been going to these conferences. But I just thought it was really cool that my end was doing the social media thing and being able to exponentially build that credibility. So, you know, I think we should talk about you, you and I met at the VRIC conference, but we actually met um, at the bar of the Pan Pacific Hotel uh, one evening. And you were introduced to me by a gentleman named Dave Lotan. And Dave is the director of the company called Orion. They're doing really, really cool exploration work in Finland. They're looking for gold there. And I've known Dave for a little while now. He's worked closely with a few friends of mine. And he, kind of like yourself, actually started as you know an industry outsider, as an investor, and got really interested in the space, got really interested in the I guess, value creation opportunities and is now very much involved in helping to build these companies and being a leader in the space. So how did, so how did guys like Dave and, and other professionals start interacting with you? Did you meet up with them at conferences similar to me or did, did you start interacting online or how did, how did those, how did you start building those sort of relationships? And the reason I ask is like, cause I think there are a lot of people at home who are very passionate about the space, who are, you know, they're starting to know a lot about the sector and they'd be interested to learn how you can start engaging with these people that uh, have a bigger role in the sector and are full-time in the space and leaders in the space. That's a fantastic question. Uh, and yeah, I'll have I'll, uh, just a couple extra things to add. This very much relates to Beaver Creek. So I'm forever grateful to uh, David Erfley from the Junior Miner Junkie and Jordan Royburn from the Daily Gold, two respected newsletter writers who said, Nick, you need to come to Beaver Creek. And I didn't have that many other people saying that. And this is the Precious Metals Summit, which is every year in September, I think going back to 2010 or so. And that is an invite only conference. Now, they gave me the recommendations and you know, I wrote in uh, to, to Jessica Leventhal who, who uh, runs it and they're like, oh, Nick, yeah, you can come. And so I was really excited that was special because that is a one-on-one one, one, one -on -one meetings, the one-on-one -on -one meetings. Um, basically, unlike a lot of conferences where you have the booths, you have um, you know, 20 or 30 minute meetings with the companies. And one of those companies was Orion Resources, which uh, I um, don't think shows up at very many other conferences. I think that's what's kind of special about Beaver Creek is you'll, you'll get a little bit more of that elite side of things, but people like me can mingle. I didn't know who would be there for that meeting. It just so happened it was only Dave Lotan, and I'm sure he's okay with me saying this, but Dave's like, 
Nick, I know all about you. I've seen all your videos. <laughs> I you know, read all your stuff. And I was like, I was wowed because like, I know other people who know Dave, knew Dave. And I knew Orion really well as a company, but I just had never talked to him on the phone. So I was kind of floored with that. And I even met him a little longer, you know, afterwards at that conference. But uh, that's such an important lesson for retail guys like myself. And I don't want everyone to start flooding to, you know, Beaver Creek now. But really, I've talked to Jessica who runs it. And she says, serious retail investors are welcome. Like if you're a serious person in this space, even if you're a total outsider, you know, if you know people like myself or Jamie and like you want to get in, you want to go to conferences like Beaver Creek because that really, in my opinion, starts to open doors. I mean, the people I meet there, I've only been twice now, every year they seem to open more doors to me than anyone else. And the one-to-ones are great because Dave wasn't the only one. There were a couple other guys who were like, Nick, I know who you are type thing. Um, it just gave me a lot more confidence. And uh, that, uh, yeah, no, that, that was a really important part of the story. And most conferences I go to now, I meet people like Dave and he introduces me to more people. So, you know, there's a couple key people like that. You really are a bit of a networker extraordinaire though, Nick, because, you know, that conference we met, I introduced you to a few of my friends that night, people that work at, you know, on the buy side and the sell side at various financial institutions. Uh, And now you know all of them and you're in touch with all of them. And I think you're in touch with all of their friends and probably all of their friends too now. Uh, So you've got a very great knack for building up this network of, you know, pretty successful people and people who are really in the know about what's going on. And, you know, I want to transition now and start talking a little bit about what it is that you're focused on in the sector. So I know, I mean, people will have seen your public persona and profile and you're making these videos and you're covering companies and you're very engaged on Twitter and CEO.ca. But the majority of your time is spent looking at companies and looking for companies and looking for great opportunities. What is the part, what is the subset of the mining industry that most interests you and that you've been able to find the most value for your portfolio and, and hopefully helping the people that have been you know, listening to you? It's, it's a good question because as I think about it, my initial impression would be discovery, but that's not true. It's really starting with those tiny market caps Often companies that seem neglected um, and you try to figure out why they're neglected, but that's what's great. You know, sub 10, 20 million, let alone sub 10 million market caps and CEO.ca is great because then I can see if even the retail is talking about it. Sometimes retail isn't and professionals definitely aren't. And then you start digging and it could be plays that are onto some type of discovery, or it could be something that, you know, already has a resource out there. But the kicker is often that it's in an exotic jurisdiction, you know, some far off part of the world. And that's when I really like it because sometimes the, you know, the quote unquote weakness is that it's being neglected because it's, you know, in a misunderstood location of the world. And so all those factors come together, but the fact that they're such a small company to begin with is what really gets me intrigued. And then I need to start to dig in and see what do I think I understand that other people don't and that maybe with my communication or you know, with maybe some improvements from the management side or promotion side, um, other people will start to, to get in there. So that's really my sweet spot. 
So let's, I think we should dig into that a little bit because, you know, you're not an engineer, a geologist, an accountant. <clears throat> you didn't sort of work your way up in the space. You don't have a technical or financial background that you typically see from investors in the mining space. So, you know, I think this would be a very good, this would be a very good conversation for retail investors at home. Where is it that you're, you think that you're able to seek out uh, informational advantages that a lot of people are missing and sort of what, what is it that you're doing that hopefully, you know, or potentially other people at home could do who don't come from a mining background? Yes. So, um, I'll have to mention two key things. So we'll go back to CEO.ca first, because that's, for me, that's a must. You know, if you're retail, it's a must. I know plenty of professionals who barely go there and they've got their own networks, but that is, that is the key retail network. And I don't care what people currently say about, you know, negative things about CEO. It's not going away. Uh, it's, it is the best place to get news in real time and see the reaction to that news in real time. So whenever I'm checking uh, you know, the Canadian, uh, the TSXV type news in the morning, uh, usually there's at least something that interests me, if not, you know, a couple. And I can see that news come out. I can see if anyone's talking about it. I can even see how many people are in that company room paying attention to it. And you can follow this stuff over months and months. So, you know, you check the first day, but then you see if people pick up on it a few weeks later. And the other key is that thinking about, well, how, if, if people miss the news at first, would they pick up on it later? You know, what's so interesting about it? So trying to decipher that news, I have to say, I do need that extra help. And I'm not going to belabor the point, but having a full service broker is huge. So anytime I'm really interested in that news, especially when it's something like drill results, I will call my full service broker that morning and we'll see if it's real. And what's interesting there is sometimes I'm bringing the idea. I might see the company before the broker sees it, but that's where I get the validation if this is serious yeah. or if it's more of a pass. So those two elements anyone can do. Um, but uh, yeah, I do that over and over again. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but your full service broker comes from a technical background, right? You work with, you go with, you go to Sprott and your yes. broker's an engineer, I think by training, if I remember correctly. Um, yes. Geologist or, or engineer, but, but yes, absolutely um, has, has worked in, in that. And I think, you know, that comes to that, that is a important point to be made that there's a lot of value to be found uh, by being first, by being aware of things, by doing your research. But Anyone who is seriously considering investing in any mining company should have some sort of technical opinion on that. And whether that's from a, a broker at home, whether it's from a very excellent newsletter writer that you may be listening to right now, or any other source, I would highly, highly recommend that. And you know that, that comes to the way that I look at opportunities too. Because you know I'm a mining engineer, but I'm not an expert at everything. Uh, I'm certainly not a geologist. I have a very good working understanding of geology, but any deal that we cover at Resource Insider, I'm very, very careful to bring that to a geologist that is specialized and expert in that exact type of deposit. So if I'm looking at a porphyry copper deposit, I want to work with a guy, I want to talk to a guy that has made porphyry copper discoveries. Same with an epithermal uh, gold project. Same with anything else. I'm also very careful to talk to people 
that are very familiar with that part of the world. So someone that has spent their entire career working at with Porphyry Coffer in Chile might not be the right person to talk to uh, if they're looking for a similar deposit in the Philippines or, or wherever else it might be. You want to have people that understand both the geological environment as well as the national, political, social environment associated with any type of discovery or exploration project or operation or what have you. Because, Nick, I'm rambling a bit here, but I know you know all this stuff. But for everyone at home, I mean, it really is two sides of the same coin and both are equally important. You need to be able to approach and address and manage the technical challenges, but you also need to be able to operate efficiently and effectively in the political and social environment which you've chosen to work. And these are equally essential, and often people are focused on one and not the other. And you have done a great job, Nick, at researching jurisdictions that other people are shy of. And now I want to talk to you about this, but why you like these somewhat exotic jurisdictions, maybe you're a bit of a romantic like me and you just get excited about them, why you're looking for value there, and do you think that's the best move right now, given how depressed the market is and that there's value to be found in, the, in North America, in more established places? So mm. let's chat about that. Sure. So um, I think that's, that's a good first point, the last thing you said. You know, so I, when, I, when I first get interested in this industry, it first, it's hard to like take everything in. You're like, there's producers, there's developers, there's explorers. And then you discover these royalty and streaming companies. And as you go along, you start to think, well, you know, how do you find these really big deposits? And you look at history and, and you hear about the Boise's Bay in Newfoundland. And even at that time, Newfoundland was totally new. So like that was kind of exotic, even though it was part of Canada. But, you know, the last 20, 30 years, We've gone to so many different parts of the world, and we're still going to more parts of the world because it's getting harder and harder to make those big new discoveries. So that caught my attention. The romantic side absolutely is there. There's there's something just you know fascinating. You're like, ooh, you know, what's this new country? I didn't even know how to pronounce until I you know just just came across it type thing. And um, and I think I I have a knack for kind of understanding the momentum, and I, I like to talk about this way, positive or negative momentum in the political situation, even the geopolitical situation of countries and regions. And so that definitely comes from me a, a bit, but I think the, when I really found the gap between perception and reality in Africa, specifically, that was a light bulb, because it's a huge continent, there's over you know 40 countries there, and everyone I talked to, whether it was on CEO.ca and to this day in conferences, especially the North American conferences, they just shy away from that. That's not true for Latin America, but I know for a fact that in the 1990s, many of the big discoveries um, and interests happened in Latin America as it was coming out of chaos. Uh, I think there was like the Shining Path group in Peru. And so many yep. people today completely forget that. As a side note, I learned a lot from reading the Jim Rogers books. And I think that's where the romant romanticism comes in that kind of ties in the whole mining book guy thing. Um, I definitely recommend people check out Investment Biker or Adventure Capitalist. I feel like I'm trying to do my part in the same way that Jim Rogers describes everything in that book, just really focused on the junior 
exploration space. And for better or worse, mostly from the comfort of my own home, but compared to the 1990s when he wrote those books or even the late 80s, I can grab all of this information on geopolitics on all these countries and I can get that advantage to, or take advantage of that gap between perception and reality when I know some place is improving and breaking out and the general market is completely ignoring it. I tend to agree with you, but, but with a couple of nuances. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when looking now, let me caveat this by saying discoveries are happening in Nevada. They're happening in Chile. They are happening in Canada. I mean, Quebec in particular, the greenstone belts there, there's definitely, definitely tons of gold and other minerals and other resources that have not been discovered. But I tend to agree with you that the monster discoveries, these huge, exciting, you know, potentially life-changing discoveries where we will likely be looking at them over the next 10, 25 years needs to be in these new jurisdictions that are just opening up for the first time. Uh, you know, you and I both love East Africa, for example. Uh, we've both been looking a lot at Ethiopia. Uh, I'm interested in Namibia right now in, in conjunction with your Africa theme. I'm also looking at places like Kazakhstan, which has mm. tremendous mineral wealth. And you need to find the right people that can effectively operate in those jurisdictions and have a proven track record of that. But if you can find them and if they're able to get things done and operate effectively and know what they're doing, there's huge, 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 in my view, amounts of value that can be created for shareholders. And I think there's also a psychological element to this too, because the kind of people that are interested in investing in the mining sector have a speculative bent obviously. You know, these are not safe investments. We talk about this a lot in our subscription service. These are high-risk investments with high-risk rewards or high rewards, potentially. And, you know, these sort of exotic jurisdictions, these un- the these blank spots on the map, really, uh, or at least the geological map, you know, they allow investors to fill that space with their imagination about what could be there. You know, it's, it's, it's totally different to have a thousand kilometers staked in Burkina Faso, in Kazakhstan, in Namibia, than it is to have a thousand hectares staked in Nevada when you're trying to find this new geologically complex, uh, this new geological idea, proving a new deposit wedged in between two or three existing deposits. And, you know, it's it's more nuanced, that sort of approach. You need a much uh, stronger geological understanding Whereas these, these jurisdictions, everyone can see the potential there. And often the stocks reflect that and, that, and that's a lot of value. And you see big ramp-ups and you see big opportunities in these stocks. So one, I think there's a lot of potential in these areas. Two, I think it's hard to operate, but if you can, there's great teams out there that are building value. And three, people just love this shit and people get excited about it. And, you know, I'm no different. I get excited about it too. There's a big reason I got into mining. You know, when I graduated university, I just took the job in the most remote place that I could get, which at the time was Albania. And, you know, it was because I was excited about these new jurisdictions. Now, the second side of that, so the nuance side is, I like this a lot for discovery stories, for exploration. 
I am not as interested in these far-flung remote jurisdictions for operations. Um, because by the time a mine is operating, this is when the reality of operating in a fucked up place really comes to play. And, you know, there is corruption, there is lack of infrastructure, there is a lack often of a educated or capable workforce. There are all these challenges that a mine has to deal with that an exploration company really doesn't to the same degree. And, you know, I was just talking about this the other day with a good friend of mine who, who did a study on this. Most of the major gold companies, almost all their value is coming out of Nevada. Like the actual money they're producing is coming out of Nevada. It's not coming out of Africa. It's not coming out of Latin America. It's coming out of Nevada because there's big fucking gold deposits there. They're super easy to operate and the guys know what they're doing. And it's just, it's as close to a sure thing as you can get. Another example is Chile. Chile is a mining jurisdiction. Chile has a hundred plus year history of operating copper mines. Copper mining companies make a lot of money out of Chile. So I like established jurisdictions for operating or near to be operating mining companies. Uh, you know, that's why we just did a deal on Northern Vertex focused in Arizona. Great place to be mining. But for discovery stories, I do like these new jurisdictions. And I think a smart management team that knows how to explore, operate, and then package these assets for sale to another mining company that knows how to operate there, you know, be it previously the Rangolds of the world that are fully, you know, probably the best in the world at operating in Africa, which is now part of Barrick. Um, this is, there's a ton of value to be created there. And I can't help get excited about those stories. And I tend to agree with you very strongly on that. Yeah, I guess just one quick thing to add, which I think would surprise maybe a lot of newer people in the industry. I had a great conversation with some new friends I made in Toronto at PDAC. And we talked about how it's kind of counterintuitive that exploration is less risky in the sense that you don't have to deal with all the bullshit later on of like trying to get things permitted and having not having to watch about like a coup from, uh, uh, you know, uh, for the president or you know, the leader of the country. These th things happen all the time. And with exploration, as long as you have a pretty decent grasp of what they're doing, what's neat about Africa, much of Africa and other parts of the world is that you can have these soil samples from surface. You can have, you know, outcropping, which over and over again, you hear in Australia or Canada or the US, you know, you have to do these blind discoveries. That there is great de risking there, and you can get that five or 10 bagger from very cheap drilling from surface. And there, there are some great examples of that happening right now. And you can sell way before we ever get to development. You could sell even before an acquisition happens. But I think that we're, we're entering a cycle where it's going to be more like the 1990s, um, where a lot of the, of the big winners will be acquired not too far after that initial discovery and going to a place like West Africa. I can't think of a better place in the world right now because of how cheap and how de-risked that is compared to an advanced development project in West Africa. I want to talk to you now about management teams. Mm. You and I have had arguments about this in the past, and we, come, we often come at this from different sides. Um, I, think we, and we, I think we both have some good points on this. 
but what I want to talk about is the value you. Th- so I, a lot of what I'm do I do is really focus on management teams early on, and I'm very careful to choose my teams carefully, as careful as the assets that are involved. I know your focus has really been in a big way on very, very high value assets. And what do you think the play, like the importance of management versus project quality? And how do you, how do you evaluate that when you're looking at things that you want to be buying? Yeah. So, so I, I talked about starting with the tiny micro caps, but I also like finding teams that are kind of first mover advantage or have that first mover advantage into a new jurisdiction. Now, I think by default, the teams that go into these new jurisdictions tend not to be the highest level teams. I mean, I think a lot of the best teams can, you know, get capital or they, they just kind of keep building in better jurisdictions. That's not always the case, but you're often not going to have the top A plus team that everyone knows in these new jurisdictions. But it means that they're very likely to get the best land, especially if they peg it first. Um, and on top of that, uh, they maybe, if you dig into management, they actually are pretty good. They're just missing a few things. Now, the biggest problem I find, and this is where I feel like I at least attempt to fill the gap, is that they, they can often be very, very poor on the promotion side. Uh, I, I guess they're just kind of hoping that the discovery is just going to build on itself. Like they'll, they'll get just enough money to make that initial discovery and then the promotion takes care of itself. That is very, very rare. I do know a couple cases where that's happened, but that's why these teams always struggle over and over. Now, yeah, this, this will I, I tend to agree with you very much on this. Hmm. And, and this will be a little of a ramble, but I think, Jamie, you can help me fill in the gaps because from the retail side, I think what I do, I could keep doing what I'm doing and you know, have these opportunities to kind of, you know, find a company that is just trading at such a low level that they're not, they're very unlikely to do a raise at that low level, you know, trading at at cash values. And maybe they just did a raise at a much higher level. So it's, it's trading at a discount or a raise is coming, but you have kind of intuition that the raise will be, be, will, will be at a greater level. As a retail guy, I can, you know, make, a 50 or 100% return, sometimes just playing that little bit of arbitrage. But longer term, often those same companies struggle with the actual raise. They're going to have those same problems over and over again. Like they'll raise just enough money or they won't get the right people in it. And um, that's where I ha- I'm less suited, but uh, I am starting to realize more and more, you know, those A-plus management teams, they know how to get the right people involved and not run into those problems. And it's often worth paying up for that extra level of value. Yeah, it's, so in my view, similar to yours, there are very few assets that are able to compensate for poor management. You know, you do get those exceptions where it's just a stunning asset, it's great results, and it's nearly impossible to fuck it up and often despite their best efforts management is unable to grasp defeat from the jaws of victory on these ones (laughs) but a good asset is typically not able to do that um, because there are so so many pitfalls and and i think you highlighted a very important one and that is managing capital markets because so often these early explorers are run by 
fantastic geologists that are familiar with the area, that understand the geology, that understand the political climate, how to get things done in, in these jurisdictions, but they don't have the background of managing their stock and managing this the company from a corporate side. And, you know, the problem with that is, and I've experienced this, a lot of geologists don't take that seriously and don't appreciate the skill set of a good market-facing CEO or maybe an excellent investor relations person that, one, knows how to structure a company in a way that they can get the right people in at the right time that will be able to support that company and build value in terms of keeping that share price going up when there is good news, when there are great results, um, that understand how to organize and arrange a financing that always adds value to that stock. And now that's a very, very hard environment to do that in today. But in a better market, this should be the expectation. Um, and too often, exactly to your point, Nick, they just think, well, we'll find the rocks and it'll be good and then the stock will go up. And you know, 50% of it, unfortunately, is how do you get your story out? Do you get it out to the right people? Uh, are the right people involved? Because often these exploration companies take many, many, many financings in order to in order to make that discovery, even if it's great, even if the project is awesome, even if the geologists are doing everything right, it takes time because it really is like finding a needle on a haystack. You're just poking little holes in there, hoping to find that. And unless you have committed investors with very deep pockets that buy into that vision and continually finance you and support that goal, it's going to be very, very hard to do on your own. And the great teams at least a component of it always always consists of this and they're able to they're able to finance that path forward so i've also found on this point that the good assets tend to end up with the great teams in the long run and you know you see these groups that have made maybe an initial discovery or at least the smoke of an initial discovery and then are unable to cross that hurdle of getting it financed of getting that next you know $10 million that it's going to take to really drill this out or whatever it is that's the next in line. And they need to quote unquote partner with another group who then takes them over and is able to fill that side. Has that been your experience at all? What are your thoughts on that, Nick? Oh, um, no, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. I, I, I think I'll, I'll add, as you were speaking, two very important things I've learned, some subtleties that, that should be helpful to a lot of newer people in the industry with management, I hear far too often, it's like, it's either great management or it's horrible, or, you know, it's like, it's binary. It's never like that, but it's, it is very important that when you know someone is like an A plus management and they're credible across the board, you don't have to do as much homework. I like to think of it as a grading system, like A, B, C, and I am very open to those B players. Now, sometimes those B players fit some, a lot of the things you just described, even if they might struggle with some of the financings, they, um, they might still be able to get great JV partners and they, they, they know how to get far enough so that those bigger A players would eventually buy them. But sometimes I get screwed because I think it's a B player, but they're really a C, D or F and I've lost money that way. And so if you're going to dig in 
to these, you know, <laughs> what you think is a B player, you have to be extra careful that they're not a, a CD or F. Well, when you're dealing with an A player, you're almost sure that they're not going to be a crook. And, and actually, we're not even talking about crooks here. Like, I think that's, that's a whole different story. It's like there are some scamsters in this industry, but I'm talking about honest, hardworking people who just don't quite make the A grade, but you can still make money with them or they can still do well even though they're a B. Uh, but the one other point I, I do need to get in is pre-discovery versus post-discovery. Because a lot of what I'm talking about, sub 20 or sub 10 million market cap, I am very open to those pre-discovery plays, You know, whether it's officially defined as a prospect generator or they own 100% of projects, but they own multiple projects. I'm buying them when they're really, really cheap, sometimes just trading over cash. Now, some people are, aren't willing to do that at all, and that's where they're worried about management. But post-discovery, this is what I really found out. There are really smart guys in this industry, and, um, and there, there are a lot of people at my level who are, who are more open to this. You know, If that discovery is spectacular, it's like, screw whatever you thought about management. Buy, buy, buy. And I've seen that happen multiple times now. Like People don't even talk yeah. about management. They're just talking about it. And that's, that's what you were describing, Jamie. It, it would be almost be like hard for them to really screw that up because it's such a spectacular discovery. But there are some management teams that could still screw those things up. <laughs> well, so this kind of brings me, makes me think of a conversation we just had on the podcast with uh, Willem Middlecomp. Yep. And uh, Willem runs the Commodity Discovery Fund out of Amsterdam. <clears throat> he himself started as a retail investor who got interested in gold, who got interested in mining. Uh, and eventually developed such an expertise that he was able to put together quite a significant fund focused purely on discovery in the space. <clears throat> and what he does is he typically waits for these these post-discovery moments, and he's he's very vigilant, uh, rather sorry, he's very vigilant on keeping an eye on a list on a lot of companies, following the results. And the second that that discovery hole comes out, it's you know, bam, the hoses are on and he starts buying up the stock and buying up the stock. Um, and it's, that is a different methodology than what I typically take. And it sounds like what you traditionally have taken, yeah. but it has worked out very well for him. Yeah. I'll just add the best thing that happens. And, and I will name drop here. Cause like, or the Ross can gold, like this is picking up steam right now. It's fascinating because that type of company would not have been one of the main companies talked about at PDAC because it's just a little gold discovery in Mali. But it started to pick up at PDAC. But what was key was that when that discovery happened, I think at the end of January, there was a day or two, not more than 48 hours, where you could still buy. And there was actually a lot of liquidity because a bunch of warrants were getting exercised. You could buy it still at that cheap level. We're talking, you know, five or six million market cap. So I, I'm thankful I was able to buy some of it. I wish I bought more at those low levels. And um, what are they at today, Nick? What, what's oh, Ross yeah. now? Now, you know, I'd have to calculate the fully diluted. It's, it's definitely at least 20 million, but I think fully diluted, we're talking closer to 30 to 40, $40 million. But the, the key point is the share price, you know, went from five or six cents to the last I checked, it was 25 cents. And, and uh, this, is, this is big money coming in. There, there are definitely institutions that came in the financing and it would not surprise me at all if institutions were, were buying now. But um, I think that's where the retail guys like myself 
can still get in before the Willems, um, you know, or I mean, he's, he's on top of this too. I don't want to speak for him because we've never met, but like the, you, you have that window if you're on top of CEO.ca and Willem actually even mentioned that uh, like the big guys came into this, but it took them a few weeks, if, if not longer. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's something I find really fascinating about your model because you've gotten into, you've found a niche where you're able to find a lot of value for yourself one, but you're also able to help create a lot of value for these companies because it doesn't take a lot of people to move a $5 million stock, right? And if you're getting this story out quickly uh, and efficiently and honestly on your on your CEO.ca channel, on Twitter, and more importantly, on your YouTube videos, you know, even if there's only a few hundred or a couple thousand people watching, if only a few of those start buying, that's 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 adding a lot of traction to these stocks. Yeah, and I guess we can we can personalize this a little. So with Roscan, I really didn't have to do anything. That that built on itself from the discovery. But when we talk about one of my you know favorites for the last couple of years, you know, Mandoro Capital, you know, that's because that one it really mattered. And uh, I mean, probably a lot of people don't realize this, but. I tried to be the connection between you and Tio to get that interview, not knowing where that was headed, but I feel like that added a lot of credibility. So, you know, I'm, I didn't get paid or anything for that, but I'm a shareholder and doing things like that and making my own videos. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I had some, some good impact on, on that one. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting how things work because you, you really made that podcast happen between me and Tio. You put us together, you gave me a lot of the background uh, and, and, you know, I should, as an aside, say, you've been the person to put me on a lot of these early stage stuff that I'm not necessarily focusing on full time. And you put them on my radar and I continue to follow them and I continue to be interested in them. Mondoro being, of course, one of them. But so I did that podcast with Tio and I've had, you know, fund managers and, and other bigger players in the space tell me, you know, I heard that podcast with Tio. That's really interesting. I'm, you know, in building interest in Mondoro. So there is this sort of chain of a widening audience that you, you see in, in bigger and bigger money that comes into this. I want to take a step back now uh, and sort of talk about how you actually got into the mining space in general. And, you know, how old are you today, Nick? I am 30, 36. It's hard because I, I, I tell you, <laughs> are you I'm sure? <laughs> 25, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little older than I look. To most people, yeah. <laughs> You're 36 years old. You are a professional full-time mining investor with an undergraduate degree in statistics who's never worked in the industry. Can you walk us through the process about how this actually happens? Sure. And I, I'll kind of continue from that earlier point where uh, I think in that finance club where it just kind of blew me away, like reading all these books and like, oh, I really love this stuff. And, you know, let me you know, buy some stocks. And we started to buy stocks in that club and I had a small account. And I think a really key thing, and this is for everybody, is you get the taste of, of victory and it's usually more luck than skill. Uh, but both for the club and my account, we bought uh, Nintendo, which was a pink sheet, uh, uh, you know, listed in Japan. This was back in 2005 or 2006 when the Nintendo Wii was coming out. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about my, my video game background, but that's where it's, I didn't analyze it so much on all the financials, you know, a little bit. It was more kind of having that vision. Um, and, and, uh, and yes, luck was involved, but that was like a five bagger 
in like six months. And so you're like, oh man, I can do this like all day. And unfortunately I lost like all that money I made in some other little piddler company. <laughs> it, was, it was a penny stock. I'll, I'll, I'll mention it because it's, it, I still, I'll never forget it. It's a U-Wink. And the coolest thing about that one is that it's run by Nolan Bushnell who founded not only Atari, but Chuck E. Cheese as well. And a lot of people yeah, yeah, yeah. don't know those names. But the worst thing, this is a mistake I made. I met him in person and I got enamored. I went down on a road show in New York City. Uh, like I took a Greyhound bus from where I lived at the time. And I was like, oh, like because I met him, this must go up. Like it must be amazing. What I didn't realize yeah. is that, or think about, no one else was in that office with me. There was like one guy half listening on the phone on the roadshow. And this was like 2007, you know, right when the financial crisis was about to happen. So all those warning signs, I didn't pay attention. So I lost pretty much all my money on that one. And of course, I'll never forget it. And you'll learn more from the <laughs> losses. But in the background, I was trying to start all these video game companies. So I'm not a technical person, but I, I, it's, it's not like I'm just a consumer of video games and I figure it out. I studied the game industry exactly the same way that I discovered, sorry, studied uh, the junior space. And I, I even tried some other businesses that failed, even like a board game type thing. And I, and I was trying to think about how could I put a board game into the video game world. And thankfully, I had a brilliant friend um, from high school who was already trying to do games. And the number one value I added was convincing him after months and months of attempt to start to make those games on Facebook rather then do it on some independent distribution service. So really the business side was key, getting that distribution, being able to get all these users without spending yeah. dollars. And so and you understood the value of that sort of platform could offer. Yes, that. I, I actually, I undervalued it because virtual currency was what was key. And so I, it's better that I don't go into all the details, but it was amazing because I, um, I know my parents were like, you better get a job, a real job within the next few months if this <laughs> doesn't work out. And you know, lo and behold, after all these other failures in between, it worked out. Like people were paying us, or I mean, less than $1,000 of investment capital. And I'll just say, you know, like within a few months, without saying any other details, we were making like $100 a month, like within a few months with like no overhead. And that was the sweet spot of Facebook, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010. Now that window eventually closed, but during that time, the most fun I had was surprisingly similar to how I interact on CEO.ca. I was interacting with all of these people um, in, in those games and, uh, uh, you know, kind of. So, oh, go ahead. Okay, let's, uh, let's, let me ask a couple questions there. So people were paying you $100 a month. Does this mean individuals were paying $100 a month to be uh, so, 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 in so these this, games? This is this is broad how, knowledge now, how does but this work, yeah. Great, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to explain it. So everybody plays for free. Um, these are free to play games. Now out of those, you know, for every hundred people that play, maybe five people will pay you money. But of those five people, only one, and if you're, or you know, one or 2% will pay you on a recurring basis. And what are they paying for? And so, in a Mafia Wars style game, because I like to describe that <laughs> more, yeah, more than the Farmville games. People, older people definitely know, know about this who've been on Facebook and they, they've seen all that. But the Mafia games were neat because they were more aggressive and people kind of teamed up. Basically, you get a lot of guns for free, but if you, um, if you, you know, release a super gun and the game is still fairly balanced, 
uh, you know, people pay real money to get a virtual currency. Um, and, and it's a paid virtual currency that can only buy that super gun. Right. Right. A free virtual currency that you, that you, um, that you always play with. So these games are really dependent on the guy that gets obsessed with them and has to win everything and gets so, the best so it, gun. It is, the best but I love whatever. this because we had some of these aggressive games and the coolest thing was that in um, these games, there were actually a group of kind of like soccer mom types uh, from, uh, uh, <laughs> they're from like New Zealand, Australia and the UK. They weren't even American and they were teaming up and like, you know, kind of like killing people. These, these are just little images. But what was cool was that they were, they actually met each other through this system. They didn't know each other otherwise. So I don't want to say that I, that this was like a service to the world, but there were, there were people that didn't actually act like gambling addicts and they were making real connections and, uh, and they never had played, you know, the 3d games before. Like for them, these little Facebook games with little images of guns, like that was kind of their go-to online social connection. So, so, so it wasn't actually the board games, the board game idea that took off. It was these sort of first-person shooter-style things on Facebook. Yes, Is that yes. Yeah. Board, board, board games didn't work, but but not first-person shooter. Like we're talking, this is just number crunching. It's almost like the bat, the uh, the platform of the game is like an Excel file, or or Dungeons and Dragons, which I I've never been big into, but but that's all numbers-based. And so you click buttons, you wait, um, and you can do a bunch of actions, and a lot of times. Um, your timer or your energy bar will run out. And so you have to wait another hour for it to refill, <laughs> or you can pay immediately uh, to pay more. So that gotcha. virtual currency is bound in, but it's just little pictures. So how this was you and your programming partner, your buddy from yes. high school. How long did you guys do this, run this business for? And how many games were you building? So, so that's, um, we, we tried a ton of games early on and, and they were making a little bit of money, but then, uh, a year in, it really started to pick up. Now, the key thing for me is that I loved that early stage. I mean, everything was great, but as we, we we brought on some more business partners, and then the company grew, and once we got to that, you know, ten employee level, um, I wasn't having as much fun. I think that's a personal flaw, honestly. I like doing my own thing. I'm not a good manager. I know that now. Um, I'm a, uh, and I. Like, I don't like kind of fitting into other people's schedules. I, I can, but basically it started to not become fun, even though we were, we were doing quite well. And Facebook was kind of um, close, start, starting to close off the channels. And, you know, right. it, was, it was harder to get the virality. Now, a key thing is um, I left the company at a time where I believe it really actually, it was in a transition, but it started to do really well later on. And I... I, really, I didn't keep up with it too much, but we're talking 2011 um, is around when I left. The company has actually been acquired. You know, that's public knowledge by a larger company called Congregate, which, you know, is, is a respected company. That can, you, can you tell us the name of your company, what it was? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's on my, my LinkedIn. So it's all there. It's um, Synapse Games. So it is not. So to be clear, it's not my company. I left the company clean. Um, I mean, we, I, I basically sold my shares back to um to my business partners well before i knew this whole transition was going to happen that was back in 2011 but it's clearly successful because the company is still running under the congregate umbrella cool now okay i have a few questions here that i want to dig into 
My first question, have you ever had a real job? <laughs> Ooh, yeah, quote unquote real job. Oh, I, I guess I almost did. Now, it's <laughs> a good point kind of in all the, the middle of this. When I was in school, for some reason, I thought I wanted to become an accountant. And I did have an inter- a summer internship <laughs> with uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and that didn't go well. I, I don't know. I was, <laughs> I was good at accounting courses, but man, when you get into the more detailed stuff, I thought I was going to be learning about like entrepreneurial stuff. And I think I was getting interested in entrepreneurship, but the accounting I was doing was for the big companies. And some people have the right head for that. I don't have the right head for that. I appreciate that opportunity. But honestly, that was the last time I had something that felt like a real job. And we're going back to like 2006. So it's been kind of jumping around different failures or successes in the entrepreneurial world since then. So what are the parallels uh, that you found from looking at this video game space and building out these opportunities here to what you see now in the mining and exploration sector? And so what are the, the, the lessons you think you learned from this, this process of building your own company and then, and then obviously selling your stock out that you, you apply today? Ooh, well, there's, there's, I'll start with a few parallels that are kind of close, close to my heart. I, I think number one was when we went into the Facebook game thing, not a single person thought that was a good idea. A lot of gaming people were like, you're crazy. No one will ever want to play, pay lots of money for little guns in a Mafia Wars game. I mean, they were, that was only just starting to, to, to happen and it wasn't widely realized. And my parents at that time thought it was a crazy idea. It's like, you should get a real job. In 2015, after I'd been like screwing around in the mining, you know, junior space and not making money, like literally a couple months before the turn in 2016, that I got that same idea from them. I was kind of scared. I was like, oh, do I have to get a real job now? And both of those was the depths of the market. It was that contrarian side of industries that weren't respected but I really felt deep down in my heart, there was a contr- like, you know, this is the place I want to be, even though I wasn't totally sure about that. And I like, I am fully convinced now that's the case, but, uh, Oh, so yes. what are the, what are the things that you look for that makes you think that like, what are the things that you saw in the mining sector at that time that made your ears sort of perk up and be like, this could be a very interesting opportunity. Oh yeah. So, um, I, Gosh. Well, I would say that once I started looking into it, that Wild West aspect is so key because I didn't know this, but there were thousands of these little Facebook game companies, just like there's thousands of juniors. Now, there always seems to be thousands of juniors out there. It's not like that disappears, but the 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 way you play around in the junior space is is completely similar. You can't pay attention to all of these and I, I distinctly remember as I was, you know, looking through the other Facebook games that maybe we should mimic, there was one that I knew the, the big players um, in that space, they didn't, weren't really paying attention to it. And I think that was a key to success was like, you know, let's copy that or let's do kind of what they're doing. And in the junior space, it's the same thing in the sense that just the professionals can't follow all these little players. So there's that inherent inefficiency of the market. Now, the face, it seems like the Facebook game space should be even more 
or should have been even more under the radar because these weren't public companies. I mean, there were there were a couple statistics um, aggregators where you could that you could find what was going on. But the funny thing is, even though juniors are public, no, no one's covering all of these. Every time, like every week, I discover something that no one's talking about, and it even helps that they're not just listed in Canada, but they're listed in Australia and in London. So. I, I could definitely answer a follow-up question, but I think that's so important is that clear inefficiency in both places and in the junior space over the next few years, that consolidation is going to continue the same way it happened in that Facebook space. So, you know, what something I'm curious about is what is your research methodology actually like when you're looking for these inefficiencies, when you're trying to build this mental model of a sector what do you, I mean, what are you doing? Are you, are you on Stockwatch all the time, reading news reports? Are you reading sort of bigger macro commentary on the sector? Are you, I mean, I know you spend a lot of time talking to management teams and other players in this, but how are you building this, this idea in your mind? Yeah, so I, I'm checking CEO.ca all the time. So I'll keep plugging them because I, I love it. No, what Tommy and Murat and the team did is amazing. I can't believe it's still free, but I do have, I do pay them for market depth for CEO Pro, so I'll give them a free plug for that. I, I pay a, a good amount of money there. I decided I would rather pay them than a newsletter writer because I love following, you know, not just the, you know, 30,000 foot trading, but, but really knowing how much are people trading these stocks after news comes out. So I'm on there all the time, but whenever I see news, I'm immediately calling my full service broker, Sam. And um, like, that's a key aspect of it too. But the thing I've added on, and I think this, this is also help, very helpful listeners. At PDAC, the two best things I did, which most people don't do, are these country sessions. I went to the Western Tethian session, which was all of Eastern Europe, where you had a mix of companies and mining ministers. And I went to the African Mining Breakfast, which isn't even at PDAC, but it's affiliated. It's at the Sheridan. And like my mind was kind of blown this year about the African mining breakfast because I went to to uh, the Tethian session last year and that's great and I actually you know met a, a minister there and, and kind of getting information but the African mining breakfast you can really mingle with these people like I mean I went up to the uh, uh, just as examples the uh, the Canadian ambassador to the Burkina Faso I saw five talks from um, five different mining ministers of different countries like Ethiopia. Um, or Rwanda uh, or, or Guinea, you know, places like that, and could mingle with them in between. And I think those types of sessions really fit kind of my passionate side of the industry is looking at these emerging regions or clusters. And all of them, every single country was like, we're going to have a conference this year, and you're invited. And I was thinking, it's like, who, the, who besides me is even listening to this? Like, you know, like, and I mean, I could go out there and totally get a first mover advantage. Like it's totally wild west. I mean, I think, I think that what's an interesting parallel is when I was walking around PDAC, Peru day was insane. It looked like, like a soccer mob almost like everybody kind of had uh, <laughs> like, like had the types of things you wear when you're, when you're a fan of these games. And I'm sure Peru wasn't like that 20 years ago. And, you know, nothing against Peru. That's a great place to mine. But, man, these Africa countries, they want to be what, what that Peru stuff is doing. And I think that that, um, that is now becoming an important third part of my repertoire, uh, you know, for networking with 
the countries and the companies, but also, of course, other investors. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I love talking to you about this stuff, Nick. I think you are the perfect combination of contrarian mindset and obsessive compulsive disorder uh, <laughs> and your ability to see something that other people can't see, you know, this vision for the future and then dive into it with a obsession and a passion that few people can muster has really been the hallmarks of, of what I've seen from you so far and the advantages that you've had here. And, you know, you were mentioning the Tethian belt, you were mentioning Africa Day, we've spoken a little bit about East Africa. We're running up on an hour here, but I'd like to finish by chatting about what you're looking at today. Where in the world are you looking and at what companies are you focused on? Um, and then I want to talk about and finish up with sort of what you're doing now and what's next for the mining book guy. Sure. So um, as mentioned, Eastern Europe's fantastic. Um, the fact that there was a lot more energy at the Western Tethian session this year than last year was a big deal. And they're now expanding it from half a day to a full day. So there'll be like twice as much of everything. Very exciting. And we know that Zijin mining is coming into Serbia, but the Japanese are there and there's Western um, uh, companies as well. So that's really cool. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And Mondoro is definitely, you know, my largest holding there, but Adriatic Metals in, in Bosnia, you know, that's, that's neat too. They weren't even there and they'll probably be there next year. So there you go. There's a couple companies there. Um, so, so this is the Tethian belt it runs through Eastern Europe yes. down into Iran. There's been a lot of attention put on that. I think lately due to Richard Wark's uh, four something million dollar placement into Tethian resources. I think, you know, when a potential billionaire who's had several very big wins in the space starts to divert capital to that to that part of the world, it starts to bring new eyeballs on the space. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to mention every single place I look at, but I will I will say that, uh, you know, Asia and South America are, or Latin America are very interesting to me. But I will hone in on Africa because there's so many different regions. And like we'd mentioned, East, East Africa is still so fascinating. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity, but it's also one of the riskiest because uh, just in the last year or two, I was super hot on Sudan and down on Ethiopia, and those have totally flipped. And so um, you know, yeah, that, yeah. That, that could keep changing, but um, I, I, um, I think there's a lot of prospectivity there and a lot of opportunity for new companies. Uh, I tend to agree with you on that. I mean, I'm really bullish on Ethiopia right now, uh, both the potential uh, geologically and really the, the ability to get things done in that country. Uh, I put a little bit of my own money into a private company there just recently. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see what comes out of there as well. And I am excited for Sudan at some point. Uh, you know, that's a challenging environment right now. Uh, but in terms of geological potential, there's very few spots on the map that can rival it right now. That's absolutely right. And I don't want to like put it down, but they're in a very fragile situation. And that's where the, the ge geopolitical side comes in. And, you know, I really like Orca Gold and it's a top team. And I like Resolute who made an investment in them, but we will see if more money comes in or, you know, something happens. And that's, that's what I stay up on day to day. Now, West Africa has probably been my longest focus. And I like it that there's so many companies there, 
but it's very simple to follow because everyone's looking for gold. They're looking for that near surface, high grade gold, and they can drill it very cheaply. And uh, I think for exploration and for knowing that there's just gonna be dozens and dozens of companies and lots of different countries, it's, a, it's probably the most interesting ecosystem for me, um, you know, purely for the gold space. Uh, and then as, as the, probably the area that I'm most excited about, because it's really hard for me to see the risks, but it's still very undervalued in North America, it's in that you know, Southern Africa area. And we're talking at least to start Botswana and Namibia, which are both countries that are huge countries, sparsely populated, uh, South Africa to the south has had a lot of problems that are well documented, but uh, you know both those countries seem very peaceful, and uh, they they really don't fit into much of the rest of Africa. And um, you know, in one of those in uh, Botswana, I really love Mod Resources for you know a copper with a silver credits uh, discovery, and that's ASX and and London listed, but not Canadian listed, which is why it's overlooked. And then. Uh, you know, Sino Resources, which we've talked about, uh, seems to be doing some interesting stuff in the gold space in Namibia. So, to, to wrap things up, where so you've, you're looking at Osino, you're looking at Mod, you're looking at Mondoro. Is there anywhere new uh, that you're looking to deploy your capital, or or that you think investors are not paying attention to that they should be that they should be focused on right now? So you, so are you specifically asking like a new region where there's actually uh, public companies that you could invest in right now? I'm actually thinking more of the companies that you really want to, you are looking at closely that you think have a lot of potential today or have we listed them all? Oh, well, there, <laughs> there's at least one I have to very quietly accumulate because I am the only person buying the shares there. So I... <laughs> So you don't want to say it on a podcast going out to 20,000. You know, I mean, Osino is a good one. I mean, that's, that's like pretty, pretty um, undervalued there. Uh, I would, uh, I would say that, uh, I mean, yeah, if we talked a few weeks ago, I could have told you Ross can, you know, these things, these things move, uh, move quickly, but West Africa, you know, you know what? We'll, we'll see how many people are paying attention. There was a discovery last night, and this is what I love, is that um, it, we'll see how it develops, but Exore Resources, which is, let me get that right, E-R-X um, oh, no, no, e on the ASX, and they have some prime land in, um, in the Ivory Coast, in Cote d'Ivoire. And I am skeptical of the the discovery after talking to my broker a bit, but I think it's actually going to be fairly liquid. So there you go. You got something I'm following right now and who knows if I'll buy it, but uh, that's, you know, just one of many companies to keep an eye on. Well, you've got about a week before this podcast comes out, so you should be able to accumulate some stock okay, in that. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> uh, just in time to promote it afterwards with this podcast. So this could work out well for you. Um, is there any advice you have for, people that are new to the space or maybe experienced in the space, but want to up their game and want to want to do better investing in mining stocks. Is there any, any, you know, advice that anyone at home can do? Oh yeah. I think, I think it goes both ways. If, if you're, if you're a retail guy, get either start subscribing to good newsletter writers, not all of them are good, but you, got, you have to ask around. Um, and, and there's, there's a lot of choices. 
um, or get a full service broker. And a lot of people don't want to do that. I understand that, but but that's for me is quite key. And and you should already be on a site like CEO.ca. But really, for the more professionals, you know, the people listening who know stuff, they should really be following more what retail, what's going on with retail. I just can't believe the lack of understanding of who's trading your stock. You know, that's really interesting you say that because this is something Chris McIntosh, my partner at Resource Insider, we talk about this a lot and he talks about this a lot from a macro view is that the retail audience is always the first and always the last to get into a stock. Mm. And it's, you've got the, the Nick Germains of the world, these obsessive retail types that are able to sort of sniff out these opportunities and sort of maybe changing tides prior to a lot of even the big professional investors. Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. I think it's because you don't exist in the same ecosystem. So you're not hearing the same, you don't have quite, you're not exposed to the same group think that these funds are. And often when these early retail guys are getting in, there is not the, the volume or the size available that these bigger funds or professional investors are really looking for. And then on the corollary of that is at the end of a cycle when, you know, I think Bitcoin or blockchain is the best example of that, when every fucking person on the planet has heard about this and you're getting advice from cab drivers and people on the street about which cryptocurrency to buy and this, that, and the other, you know, that's when the other side of the retail crowd gets in. And so watching retail is like a sort of a canary in the coal mine. It can show you when things are changing, both for the benefit, for the beginning of a cycle, and for the end of a cycle. And I think, you know, seeing you and guys like you and, you know, a few other people that you and I mutually know that are, are really getting passionate about the space and seeing that opportunity is such a good indicator for the mining industry right now. Uh, just like, see, you know, I was literally on the subway here in Vancouver last year and heard like 17-year-olds talking about the cryptocurrencies they were buying. <laughs> and I was like, this has got to end. Like, this has got to end. This can't be, this cannot be sustainable. And, and, and I think it was a very good indicator that it wasn't. Um, yeah, take that as you will. Yeah, no, great insights. And thankfully, we're not anywhere close to that in the mining space if you are a new investor here. But like, you want to start now because this this is the last piece of advice. It has taken me years to kind of develop the confidence and to feel like I have a system, even though it's it's like my own type of thing. That that doesn't just come magically. You 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 almost have to go through some failures, and you hope they're not like totally horrible, you know, ruining failures, like things that hurt, but you'll never forget. And if you start now, I think you can develop that in a year or two. And you know, if there's the boom comes five years from now. That's perfect. Yeah. And I'm just going to disclaim that for a minute. And I'm going to say what we always say to the people that subscribe to our newsletter is that you should really not be betting the farm on any one mining stock, any one company, or even this sector in general. Absolutely. Um, I always say to people, this should represent a portion of your portfolio, the high percent portion. Uh, sorry, not the high percent portion, the <laughs> high risk portion, <laughs> which for most of you will be a low percent portion. Um, and it's easy to get caught up hearing professional. I mean, you know, I'm a bad example of this because a lot of my money is tied up in mining uh, and natural resources. But that's because it's all that I do all day, every day. Uh, it's my career. It's my whole life. 
for most people at home, this should represent a much, much smaller portion. And it should never be a portion that you're not willing to lose. And if you do lose it, it should, you know, it should make for a bad day, not a bad year. So please keep that in mind. There's a lot of money to be made, a lot of fun to be had, but do not fuck your life up by buying a mining stock, please. Yeah, totally agreed there. <laughs> so before we wrap up, Nick, what is it that you're doing today? You know, where can people find out more about what you're doing, Mining Book Guy, your recommendations, even the books you previously recommended? Where do we go to find out more? So this, I think, is going to be pretty cool. I hope so. But go to www.miningbookguy.com and I am just launching a free email service, you know, no charge to you whatsoever, something I probably should have done a few years ago. And I want that to be the centerpiece of how I distribute all of my content. Now, right now you could search for Mining Book Guy on Google or YouTube and you'll, you'll come across all sorts of different things, but make sure to go to, to miningbookguy.com, sign up for the newsletter, and hopefully I'll be able to share lots of interesting insights that only come through uh, that email service. So there you go. Nick, I think you, you might've outgrown your monkeyer now. I think we might need to rebrand you as like mining stock guy or mining a lot of different things guy. <laughs> Maybe, but at least no one else cares about mining book guys. So they <laughs> get the URL and all that stuff, but yeah, totally understand. You know, yeah, just as an aside, when I first saw your channel, I was like mining book guy. I was like, God, there's only like four mining books. I was like, what is he going to talk about? Uh, but your ability to draw parallels to other industries and, and other leaders and other natural resources and other books that are very valuable to the mining sector or those interested in the mining sector is, is very impressive and, and very worthwhile. And I'd, I really would say to anyone listening to this, do check out Nick's website. Do check out his YouTube channel. I talked to Nick almost every week and almost every week he's got a new idea and he's really drawn my interest to a lot of companies and even parts of the world that hadn't previously been on my radar and it's it's added a tremendous amount of value to me and and honestly to the service that we offer at resource insider so nick is a huge resource uh currently he is a free resource so i would highly recommend you take as much advantage of him as you can before he figures out a way to make money on this sort of thing <laughs> Thanks so much for the endorsement, Jamie. <laughs> All right, Nick. Um, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day. Um, any last words uh, prior to saying goodbye? Uh, you know, just that uh, I've really loved this stuff and I've been doing it for free for so long. Um, you know, we'll see what happens, but I, I feel like I'm going through some, you know, potentially professional changes here. And so just be on the lookout for, for what I'm doing. But uh, I hope more people want to join me, you know, on this journey. I think there's so much more room for younger people to just kind of make a splash and have some influence. And so, so I hope you take a lot of this advice to heart. Nick, thanks for taking the time today. <laughs> thanks, Jamie. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.